The following podcast contains audio extracted from videos on the Mythology Explained YouTube channel. Please note that there are two narrators for this podcast, myself, Silas, and Zach. Please enjoy. Hey everyone, welcome to Mythology Explained. In today's video, we are going to discuss Isis, the mistress of magic, the might of her magical mastery, making her one of the most powerful gods in all of Egyptian mythology. As Weret Hakau, meaning the great of magic, she was sometimes depicted as a cobra who suckled and safeguarded the pharaoh. And with respect to defending Egypt's borders, she was said to be greater than a million soldiers. She was the sister wife of Osiris, ruling alongside her husband as the queen of creation. She was the mother and protector of Horus, the rightful king who would win back his father's crown and the usurper Set. She was the symbolic mother of every pharaoh, the pharaohs themselves symbolic incarnations of Horus, and she was the griever, preserver, and guardian of the dead. Her magical escapades and exploits include poisoning the sun god and stealing his power, materializing appendages, reincarnating the king of the gods, taking the form of animals and of other people, transforming into a flint statue after being decapitated to preserve herself, conjuring up weapons that listen to her and respond to her bidding, and countless other examples. These named hitherto but a mere glimpse into the spells, sorcery, necromancy, and enchantment that were at her disposal. Alright, let's get into it. The cult of Isis had really risen to prominence by the first millennium BC, and in the fullness of time, she would become the most widely worshipped goddess in all of Egyptian mythology a fact shown empirically by evidence of her cult having been found in places as far as Britain, this from when it was a Roman province. As her popularity spread, so did her sphere of influence, including more and more. She became a sea goddess of sorts, the protective power that was at her core, helping ships survive treacherous waters and make it home safely. During the Greco-Roman era, there was a lot of cultural cross-pollination, that came from the Greek conquest of Egypt and later from the Roman conquest. The Greeks identified Isis with Demeter, which significantly swelled her importance as an agricultural deity. As Sirius, the brightest star in the sky, called Sopdet by the ancient Egyptians and Sothis by the ancient Greeks, Isis had long-standing ties to the inundation that made the banks of the Nile so fertile. However, she later became credited with the actual invention of agriculture, making her its prime patron. Certain hymns of Greco-Roman origin proclaim Isis as the creator of the world. These also say that it was by the will of Isis that men loved children, women, and their parents. Amazingly, her influence was so prevalent and persisting that it was one of the chief rivals to Christianity in the early centuries after its rise. Here's a couple sentences from Egyptian mythology, a guide to the gods, goddesses, and traditions of ancient Egypt to explain further. All other goddesses became merely names of Isis. In his book concerning Isis and Osiris, Plutarch suggested that the all-powerful Isis allowed herself to be portrayed as a woman of sorrows to console suffering humanity. This, and her promise to believers of a happy life, made the Isis cult the closest rival to Christianity in the early centuries of the first millennium AD. According to Serket, the scorpion goddess who controlled the breath of life, the creator made everything, 
and everything was ruled over by the Creator in his incarnation as Ra. Ra had many names and took many forms, but his true name was something he kept secret from the rest of the world. He concealed his true name within himself, in his own stomach, keeping it in the vault of his own person where it stayed secure from hostile forces who would use it against him. Of all people, it was Isis, Ra's own daughter, who would challenge him. Isis was said to be cleverer than a million gods. The secrets of all creation were known to her, as if universal understanding were an open book she leafed through at her own leisure. However, there was one piece of information that escaped her, Ra's true name. Of everything in heaven or on earth, this was the only thing. In his younger years, Ra was far too formidable for any god, even Isis, to challenge him, be it bold and direct or cunning and circumspect. However, Ra did age, and eventually he too was subject to the degeneration of millennia, all of the diminishment there entailed. In time, Ra would abdicate the throne and relinquish his rule, him retiring to the sky and the kingship passing to other gods. But before that, he became an old king, vulnerable. Ra deteriorated, becoming something of a dotard, described as slack-jawed and drooling. Isis senses weakness and seizes on the opportunity. She gets some of Ra's saliva, combines it with dirt, and uses these two components to create a snake, leaving it on the road that Ra walks every day. It wasn't long before fell fangs buried themselves in the flesh of the frequenter the snake biting Ra the next time he walked by. And to describe what happens next, here's a passage from Egyptian mythology, a guide to the gods, goddesses, and traditions of ancient Egypt. The poison burns like fire, and Ra gives a terrible scream that disturbs all the gods. As the snake has come from the body of Ra, just like the eye goddess, it presumably has the same terrible fiery poison as the goddess's snake form. At first, Ra is unable to speak because his lips are trembling and his limbs are shaking. The poison had overwhelmed his body like the inundation overwhelms everything in its path. Then the sun god takes courage and explains to his followers that he has been stung by an unknown creature, not created by him. He summons his children, the other gods, to see if any of them can help him. The gods are distraught at the catastrophe that has overtaken Ra. Isis pretends to be as bewildered and upset as the rest. She asks Ra if one of his own creations had rebelled against him and promises to destroy the attacker with her powerful magic. Ra then tells again how he was stung while walking through the two lands, Egypt, because my heart longed to see what I have created. He gives a vivid description of the symptoms of the snake bite. He feels colder than water and hotter than fire. He is drenched with sweat and has lost his sight. Isis claims that she can help if Ra will tell her his name. Ra proclaims that he is called Kepri in the morning, Ra at noon, and a tomb in the evening, but none of these is his true name, so the pain continues. Isis insists that she cannot heal him without knowing his true name. When the pain gets worse, Ra gives in and whispers his name to Isis. Though the true name is not divulged in the story, Isis does ascertain it. Ra, in a generous moment of prognostication, tells her that she can share his true name when the time comes with Horus, Horus not yet born, not even a seed planted. Isis, here the architect of anguish, promptly ended the suffering she subjected Ra to. Later, 
Isis did indeed share the true name with Horus. And this is what really ties the whole story together, the end justifying the means. Torturing your own aged father for power for the sake of power alone doesn't look great. Obtaining power so that it can be passed down to your son, the rightful king, thereby allowing him to ascend to the throne and begin his righteous rule has a much better feel to it, a narrative people can get behind. Putting a virtuous veneer on what would otherwise be something not entirely unlike unmitigated villainy. Isis is one of the nine gods of the Heliopolitan Enyed, which is to say one of the nine most important gods in the city of Heliopolis. First there was a tomb, the god who brought himself into existence in the waters of chaos. He then independently produced two children, a son, Shu, the personification of air, and a daughter, Tefnut, the personification of moisture. These two, the first divine pair, then came together and by their union became the progenitors of the fourth and fifth gods of the Enyed, a son, Geb, the personification of the earth, and a daughter, Newt, the personification of the sky. And then, like their parents before, they too came together, procreating four children, Osiris, Isis, Set, and Nephthys, two divine brother-sister pairs, Osiris and Isis marrying, and Set and Nephthys marrying. And here, I'd like to say a quick word about Ra being referred to as Isis's father in the story of the sun god's name. Technically speaking, Geb and Newt were the parents of Isis. However, Ra, as the sun god aspect of a tomb, the creator, the two of them combining to make a tomb Ra, was viewed as the creator or father of everything. Ra ascended to the sky, heralding the end of his reign on earth. In his place, other gods took up the mantle of the monarchy. As for who immediately inherited and how the line of divine kings was sequenced, there are many versions. Eventually, one version emerged in which the course of the crown paralleled the generations of the Enyed, passing from a tomb Ra to Shu, who was succeeded by his son Geb, who was succeeded by his son Osiris, who was supplanted by Set, who was overthrown by Horus, who was the last god to directly rule the mortal world before the time of the pharaoh set in. When the kingship passed to Osiris, Isis helped her husband rule Egypt. And when Set murdered Osiris, Isis was the main person who defied Set and worked to see the kingship restored to the right person. There are many accounts that tell of the murder and resurrection of Osiris, but the one we are going to focus on was penned by Plutarch. He was Greek, so authenticity is questionable. The author's own culture is certainly suffusing the work, but nonetheless, his is a comprehensive telling. According to Plutarch, Set had a chest made to suit Osiris's exact dimensions and then contrived for Osiris to lie down in it. The chest lid was quickly slammed shut, sealed, and with Osiris trapped inside, was thrown into the Nile where it was carried out to sea. Isis later recovered the chest, which had washed ashore. She brought her husband's body back to Egypt, but Set learned of this development. He found where the body was being kept, butchered it into 14 pieces, and scattered the pieces far and wide. Undeterred and undaunted, Isis once again set out to recover her husband's body, made more complicated this time by the dismemberment and subsequent dispersion. Thirteen of the pieces were found, but the fourteenth, the phallus, 
was destroyed, cast into the Nile, and then consumed by fish. Isis overcame this obstacle by making a model of the phallus and consecrating it, thereby creating a suitable replacement. Osiris was brought back to life for a short time, long enough to impregnate Isis with Horus, after which time he returned to the underworld where he ruled as the Lord of the Dead. Isis was Horus's staunchest supporter. She birthed him, nursed him, raised him in secluded secrecy, and protected him. And when the time was ripe for her son to claim his birthright, she wasn't going to passively observe what unfolded, instead taking an active role in championing her son. For 80 years, Horus and Set contended for the throne, disparaging, duping, and dueling throughout. And over the course of these long and tumultuous decades, Isis' support for her son was unflagging and unwavering, pleading his case in the divine court and helping whenever and however she could when Horus and Set competed against each other. Early on in the ordeal, she was so ardent in her advocation that Set became furious and refused to attend court so long as Isis was present, forcing the entire court to relocate to a place where Isis wasn't allowed to be present. However, Isis bribed the boatman and was ferried across to the island where the gods now convened and deliberated. On the shore, Set saw Isis, but she was too far away to be identified. What Set saw was the nubile figure of some woman. This stirred his loins, so he walked over, and Isis, sensing an opportunity, used her magic to transform herself, deceive Set, capitalize on the situation, and turn her ostracization into an advantage. Here's the passage from the contendings of Horus and Set that describes this. Now as she was walking under the trees, she looked and saw the Enyed, sitting and eating bread in the presence of the Universal Lord in his pavilion. Set looked and saw her when she had come closer from afar. Then she conjured by means of her magic and transformed herself into a maiden whose body was beautiful and whose like did not exist in the entire land. Thereupon he desired her most lecherously. Set got up from sitting and eating bread with the great Enyed and went to meet her, for no one had seen her except himself. Then he stood behind a sycamore tree, and he called her and said to her, I am here with you, beautiful maiden. And she said to him, Reflect, my great lord. As for me, I was the wife of a cattleman, to whom I bore a son. My husband died, and the lad started tending his father's cattle. But then a stranger came and settled down in my stable. He said thus, speaking to my son, I shall beat you, confiscate your father's cattle, and evict you, said he speaking to him. Now it is my wish to have you be a champion for him. Thereupon Set said to her, Are the cattle to be given to the stranger even while the man's son is still about? And so Isis transformed herself into a bird, flew up, and perched on top of a tree. She called Set and said to him, Be ashamed of yourself. For by taking the part of Isis's son in the scenario she fabricated, Set had condemned his own conduct towards Horus. This is but one of many examples in which Isis uses her magic to help her son. We are not going to comprehensively cover Isis's involvement in the contendings, but she was instrumental and her magic indispensable. In the end, Horus wins out. He's made king and Set is brought before him in chains. A magnanimous moment marked the beginning of Horus's rule. Instead of imprisonment or exile, the sun god stepped in and declared that he had a use for Set, 
who would henceforth accompany Ra on his bark and serve as a divine defender for him as they made their way through the underworld each night. As the mother of Horus, Isis was viewed as the mother of the pharaoh, the pharaohs identifying themselves with Horus and claiming kinship with Isis. From at least the time of the pyramid texts, the pharaoh was said to suckle from the breasts of Isis. Later, the pharaohs were described and depicted as the sons of Isis. Interestingly, because the hieroglyphic sign was the same for the word throne and for Isis's name, it has been hypothesized that Isis was seen as the embodiment of the power of the throne. This has been connected to the tradition of certain African tribes, in which an epithet for the throne is mother of the king. And that's it for this video. If you enjoy the content, please like and subscribe. Thanks for watching.